Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Getting towards the middle of September, and the West Coast is quite literally on fire. Uh, the, um, the environmental causes and consequences of this great conflagration are uh, very troubling, obviously, in the short term. In the long term, God knows what's going to happen in terms of the kind of cancerous materials put into the atmosphere. It feels like the whole coast is being poisoned. Uh, and as that coast is being poisoned, I've been reading one of the best books of the season, a new book called Milltown, uh, Reckoning with What Remains, a book very specifically about the fate of a small town, a mill town in, uh, in Maine. Uh, uh, Kerry Arsenault is the author, first-time author, but very well-known in literary circles. Kerry, uh, how contemporary, how broad is the lesson from your book? Obviously, it's a, a book of, a, a, about the tragedy of a specific small town, but can this... Can your narrative, which is tragic and poetic, be broadened to apply to the rest of America? It's funny you say that. Um, the economic developer from this small town, he commented on the book and said, oh, Carrie's book is about the past. But I would argue that it's completely contemporary because there's so many small towns across America that are that have suffered over the last 50 years and are still suffering under the last 50 years, not just um, environmentally, as, as my book is, but also economically, um, you know, identity-wise, but, you know, it's so many towns, and they're not in the past. Also, the other reason it's not in the past is because if it is an environmental crisis in these towns, it is still literally in their DNA <laughs> and harming people currently today. Not just the people in these towns, but those kind of toxics are in all of our bloodstreams. Yeah, and not only is it a, a narrative, I, I fear, of the present, but particularly of the future. So, Kerry, before we get into the, the lessons, uh, the broader lessons of Milltown, tell me about this place. Um, Mexic is it, it's Mexico, Maine, that you grew up in. It's a book which is deeply autobiographical, but also uh, focuses on the, the crisis of the economics and culture of belonging in the, in the United States. Yeah, so genre-wise, I don't know, we call it an uh, investigative memoir, if you don't mind, um, about a small paper mill town. The two paper mill towns, we call them paper mill towns, but really the mill is in Rumford, Maine. Our town, Mexico, Maine, is right next to it, where for three generations my family worked in this town since, since the mill opened in 1901. Um, and I'm trying to examine not only the history and the contemporary problems from that mill and how our town orbited around it for so long, but also the rise and collapse of the American dream and the working class within that American dream. So the hat, like you said, the hazards of loving and leaving home and the ambiguous nature of toxics and disease. You now, how can we connect? Is it possible to connect 
environmental toxics to diseases. I'm surprised, Kerry, that you use this term American dream. Um, uh, earlier this week, I talked to Tom Hartman, a, a very well-known left-wing um, American a radio host, journalist. He's written a book about monopolies in America. He also talks about the death of the American dream. Like Hartman, I'm guessing politically you're on the left. Do you, are you comfortable with that kind of nostalgia? Did it really exist ever, the American dream? Um, yeah, I would say my rise and collapse of the American dream started in like a day and collapsed in a day. <laughs> I, I don't really think it ever existed except perhaps for maybe some people in the, the people that were creating the American dream. I mean, if you think about the, the upward mobility has been, I feel like it's been a fiction. I mean, I'm no economist or anything. I'm just operating from within the realm of this town, but it was like a fiction as much as the Horatio, Horatio Alger, you know, these, it was like a, in the late 19th century, it was a structural mobility, right? This is Ben Fountain writes about this in his great book. And it's also called, I have to get it, pardon me. Burn, beautiful country, burn again. But the structural um, mobility played a bigger role. It was like everybody was moving up en masse. It wasn't like the working class or, you know, people were moving up. Everybody's life was improving in the late 19th century, you know? Um, and then if you apply that to my town, that's exactly what's happening. Everybody, it looked like they were, you know, participating in the American dream, but at the same time, they were being poisoned by the very thing that, that they were making paper. Um, so that's part of the problem. So rather than the American dream, uh, the reality is, is the American nightmare. Your book, as I said, is very autobiographical, but not just about you, about your lineage, about your cultural history, your family. You write a lot about your father and grandfather. If we had or, or are, I'm not sure if they're still alive, if, if, if we asked them about the American dream, what would they say? I think, I don't think they would, I, I think they would agree with me. I don't think they ever felt like it was a, a dream. I, I finally visited the paper mill where my father worked. Neither of them are alive. My father died in the middle of writing this book um, of cancer, of something he got out of the mill. But um, I finally went on a tour of the mill, just a very brief tour um, after he died. And I went in and I was in there an hour and I couldn't have put up, I couldn't have put up with it for more than an hour with the racket and the steam and the, you know, and not, I wasn't being poisoned, but um, you know, all of that, just, he did that for 45 years and his father did it for 45 years and then his father did it for 45 years it didn't really seem like a dream to me but they did it you know it wasn't it wasn't really a choice in a way they everybody thinks they have choices but if you grow up in that environment and you don't have an education I was the first in my family to be educated college mm. you know that's a good paying job and it's steady income and it's healthcare and it's all that stuff um, that that they got so it was what they needed it's not what they dreamt about right <laughs> yeah in a funny way you remind me in, in terms of the difference between you and your father and grandfather they both had jobs um in cancer valley as you said they they themselves were victims of 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 um of of milltown of the cancerous nature of of, of work and life in the town uh 
Uh, I had uh, Vanessa Veselka on the, on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, um, the Portland-based novelist. She's written a book about this shift from the American proletariat to the precariat, people who do many different jobs, this shift in the nature of work. You yourself, I think, are an example of uh, the precariat. You uh, boast, I don't know whether you boast or ashamed <laughs> of the fact that you've had, what, 80, 85, almost 90 jobs. How do you think your history as of, of labor has changed you in comparison to your father and grandfather and indeed your mother? How has it changed me? I, you know, the, the biggest difference is they stayed in one spot and I moved around. And I think that distance and proximity makes a big difference in how you see the world too, you know, and, Part of really the reason why I wrote this book, it, would, it had to take me going away and being age 45 before I even began to write it, to even think about this book or to even think about what the problems this town was facing um, because I moved and because I had that perspective on it to be away from it. Whereas they stayed in one spot and that's not to diminish them staying in one spot. They had other things that I didn't have like stability and one job instead of 90 jobs. And belonging. And belonging to a community. Yeah, my husband and I, you know, he was in the Coast Guard too. So I moved around and then I married a guy who moved around even more. Um, we, yeah, no stability. We couldn't even decide where we wanted to live. You know, the Coast Guard sends you where they're going to send you. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like we, we both, there were, there were positives and negatives on both sides, but I've had the luxury of having at least both, you know? I had that stability. I grew up with a stable environment. I had a wonderful childhood. I knew what that stability meant. So I operated from that, from the, from the ground up, you know? So even though I was thrown hither and yon, I still had that stability that sort of undergirded my whole operation. You're a kind of bridge then uh, as a metaphor. And one of the central metaphors in your book is the river, the river that snaked its way through Milltown. You quote John McPhee, who writes, rivers are the ultimate metaphors of existence. What does this river, this decaying, toxic, poisonous river that, that goes through the middle of Milltown, what does it tell us about contemporary America? First of all, the environment. I mean, the, the way this river goes through the town, it, it, it it accumulates things, right? As it goes through the town, it goes through the next town and the next town and the next town. And then it eventually dumps into the Atlantic Ocean, right? So all the things that it carries along with it, all the toxics and all the things, it really goes out, it, it, it dumps it in there literally and figuratively so that these toxics aren't just about what this town is dealing with. They're going out into the ocean, they're getting in other things too, and they're getting in you and they're getting in other people. You know, so it's like, it's not just, it's not just a, a thing that is happening in this town. And it, the cover, I don't know if you have the cover there. I do have the cover. Yeah, the cover, yeah. The the cover actual, is a, um, excuse me, I wrote on it, but. Um, that's right. That's the shape of our river. That's the actual shape that goes through the town. And all right. it also, to me, looks like a DNA strand too, you know. Um, it was, it, it also tells a story of, you know, the environmental movement in America. Um, in 1970, when I was three years old, that river was one of those polluted in the United States. 
And that was also around the time when Ed Muskie penned the Clean Air and Clean Water Act. And he's from our town, Rumford, the next town over. So, um, you know, he had a lot to do with sort of cleaning up the river, although I would argue it's, it looks better, but I'm not sure it's cleaner. <laughs> One of the other people I'm talking to this week is Martin Sambu, the FT journalist who's written a book called The Economics of Belonging, very different book from yours, much more um, economic, less poetic, but he's writing about the same thing, the crisis of belonging in America. Your book, Milltown, is about this crisis of belonging, about people who stayed, like your parents, like some of the people you grew up with, and yourself who left. In a sense, then, the metaphor of the river is a place that you, you go down, that you leave. Um, yeah. How do we fix this crisis of belonging? How do we bring these two worlds together? How can we give your generation a sense of belonging, even if they have to leave their places of birth like Milltown? Great question. Um, no, it's, um, you know, the emptying out of rural America and middle-class America and working-class America, all that, that dehiscence that happened, you know, took us away from, redistributed the money and took us away from businesses that weren't named after our fathers and grandfathers. I mean, I think that's something that we can do. They move, as they moved to the cities, me or whoever, we moved away from our towns. I think we can still bring that, that, those kind of things with us, you know, take them along like luggage. We can, we can open stores and, and named after our fathers and grandfathers. We can take the stability that we got that undergirded, like I said, our whole operation. We can, we can take the talent and education that we took away from those towns and, you know, put it elsewhere, or we can even, you know, I've seen some people go back to their towns and try to, you know, regenerate their towns, bring that talent back. There's a book, I can't think of it, I have a terrible memory. It's in my bookcase back there, but he did that. He went back to his town and, and tried to make a go of it. Um, was it really an option for me, you know, with the um, manufacturing paper on the decline and, and, you know, the, the kind of manufacturing they're producing in, in sort of real goods instead of information it wasn't really not, wasn't really an option for me. I don't know. A couple of weeks ago, we also had Carl Hoffman on the show, a travel journalist, brilliant book. Uh, he's just come out with called Liar's Circus, in which he followed the Trump people around these hardcore Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. And he also writes about these not declining small towns, the death of small town America. He goes through certain small towns. I think it was in Tennessee or perhaps Kansas, where the town has literally died. Now, perhaps Milltown, Mexico, uh, Maine hasn't quite died yet. But these towns are on their death throes. And of course, these are the kind of places which seem to be quite supportive of populists like Donald yeah. Trump. What is the politic called the political implications of this crisis of belonging is it the yeah. conventional idea that this white working class that has been so poisoned by uh late stage capitalism they're the ones who are flocking to the the poison of trumpism and other kind of populists um yes and no i'm I'm going to just edit that a little bit and say it's working class instead of even just white working class, although granted Maine is pretty white and my family's white, so I can't, 
I can't get away from that. But what happened in our town too, in, in Mexico, Maine was the biggest supporter of Obama. And then in 2016, it flipped and they were the biggest supporter of Trump. And I really looked at, I tried to think about why and not, not like doing research, but just going and sitting there and talking to people and trying to understand where they were coming from. And like I said, this the past 50, 60 years, they've been creamed by a lot of things, you know, they were creamed by everything from strikes to recessions and, and, and globalism and Milton Friedman and, you know, you name it. They're like, I think I wrote something, I, I maybe get it wrong, but like the ropes that had belayed them before, you know, healthcare, insurance, and being loyal to the company, it was gone. It was like free market, trickle down, you know, anything trickling down was like everyone for themselves. So that sort of attitude about everyone for themselves was sort of mirrored in Trump, right? In, in what he said, that was part of it. The other part of what Trump did was, you know, he actually looked at these people. He saw them. He opened his door. I say he's, it's like there are all these politicians are driving through with their limousines, but Trump is the only one that stopped, opened the door and said hello. And it's interesting too, because that is part of it is just to be seen. And that is the biggest commentary I've heard from my book so far from people in mill towns, including mine is like, they've written me and said, thank you for seeing us, you know? And I think that's a really big part of the politic. I'm not even sure, I mean, Trump's problems aside, they were just like, he, they saw in him hope, just like they had seen in Obama, but nothing changed for them. So they thought, let's just throw our eggs in this basket over here and see what could happen. And Trump was kind of that rowdy enough, you know, talked in that sort of no nonsense way that, we had appreciated, I think, or I say we, I didn't vote for Trump, but like, I'm just talking the bigger we as in working class, I think we appreciated his no nonsense kind of thing combined with he looked at them and saw them, whether he lied or not, it was irrelevant. Um, you know, if you're, if you're living in one of these dying towns, um, there's not a lot to, you know, you're, you're trying to just make a living, maybe feed your kids. I mean, there's four to five kids in our town are hungry, food insecure. There's an opioid crisis. There's like everywhere, you know, there's, and then on top of all that kind of economic crush is, is people are sick, you know, and that's no small thing to be sick on top of it and not be, not have healthcare and not be able to afford. I mean, you just go on, the things pile on. Who's going to have, you know, somebody walks in and says, Hey, I see you let's vote for him. I think that was more of it than any sort of other issue. Carrie, uh, you're suggesting then that, that, that uh, Mexico, Maine might be a, a window into how America thinks, or a certain portion of America, critical part of America in terms of this upcoming election. They went for Obama and then Trump, uh, where do you expect them to vote in November? Ha ha have the people, the population, I know you can't speak on behalf of everybody, but in your experience, um, have they grown tired of Trump? Have they seen through him, even though he noticed them? I think there are a lot of people that have seen through him. But unfortunately, the other side, the Democrats or whoever they're putting forward, hasn't really figured that out yet either. So 
it's kind of like the same things happening over again. You know, they're not really, they're not really seeing them either. So I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, the last time I wasn't home, but a friend of mine was there and he said there were tons of Trump signs everywhere um, in our hometown. I don't know what that means. It could just mean they're more vocal about who they're going to vote for. Um, and I haven't been there since probably in a year. Um, so I'm not really sure, but I feel like the biggest problem is that the Democrats or the liberals and the progressives also haven't. They're really just still doing what they did in the last election, which is not really paying attention to the, what the working class needs. They're giving lip service, they're not really doing anything. Well, if you read one book this fall about America, I would strongly suggest Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains by Kerry Arsenault. Just like her persona in, in, in this conversation, uh, she is uh, very thoughtful, very poetic, uh, and honest about what's happening in these lost towns of, of America. Uh, Kerry, in addition to Milltown, you're, you're in Connecticut at the moment, weird times on lots of levels. Uh, what else are you reading or what would you suggest people read in this dark fall of 2020? Well, I hate to say it, it's Tale of Two Planets by John Freeman. I don't hate to say it, but it's, um, you know, it's climate change, uh, um, short pieces, essays, short stories about what's going on in America and the planet. Really, he's got writers from all over the world talking Is about- Is that book out? John was on the show a few months ago. I don't know if the yeah, book's out yet. Yeah, it's right here. Let me oh, grab it. Well, you have it. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll have to get John back on and talk. Wow. John, you can talk about this book. Yes. Well, John, yeah. if, you're, if you're watching, send me the book and let's get some of those authors on. Wow, that's a great book. Yeah, particularly in- the Yeah, stories of climate change. On the West Coast. Right, especially, you know. Um, I'm also reading a story called, Benef a, a novel called Beneficence um, by Meredith Hall. It's coming out or just came out this week. Um, it takes place in Maine and it's a story about loss and grief and it is like a masterpiece of writing. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of writing about this one family living in Maine. So um, that suffers a, a huge loss, but it's really, it's told through the different voices of the different people. It's like one chapter is the mother, then the father, then the child. And it keeps, it keeps rotating through. It's really beautiful. You've been listening to Keenon, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.